0: In this presentation, we're going to focus on the topic of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ among the great religious leaders of the world, and I'd like to begin with a passage of scripture. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blessed him for making this response. Jesus asked the same question of us today, of the people of this age? Who do we say that he is? And a few common answers that I hear from dialogues with people and reading around the internet, I'm going to go over five different possibilities here. One is that he's only a myth. There was no man named Jesus who existed. He's kind of a composite literary character. Most scholars don't accept that, The existence of the Christian church alone is proof that Jesus existed. There's no explanation for it otherwise. Second, that he's just a great teacher on living a moral and spiritual life. Even some Christian writers today like to emphasize Jesus as a wisdom teacher in a wisdom tradition. He gives us guidance for living, and in that he's quite valuable, a great contribution he's made. Or, some would say Jesus is one of many significant revealers of God, along with the founders of other world religions, along with avatars, sad gurus. Nothing especially unique about him, except he came from Judaism, and he was a great, great man, great leader, great spiritual person, and a revealer of God. To the Muslims, Jesus is a prophet. He is the son of Mary as well. But he's not also the Son of God. And so for them, they really look to Jesus. They esteem Jesus. Finally, we would say that in Christianity, Jesus is more than any of these. He is the definitive revelation of God. As Peter put it, the Son of the living God. God incarnate. Or I like the phrase, God made into flesh. It was given by one of the wise men in The Nativity Story, a wonderful movie. How did Christianity come to this affirmation of Jesus as the Son of the Living God? And what do we mean when we say this? That's going to be the main focus of this presentation. And we begin after the experience of the resurrected Jesus. The group of his followers were very disillusioned and hiding after his crucifixion, and then they had encounters with him. They talk about that in the scriptures, as we know. They believed he had risen from the dead. The tomb was empty, and furthermore, they encountered him in a very special manner that was convincing to them that he had risen. Then there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which empowered them for preaching and healing. It gave them courage. They formed communities. These stories are well known by Christians. But then there came a period of ongoing, deeper reflection about what happened. Who was this Jesus? What was the meaning of it all? What happened? We find early answers and convictions about this in the New Testament whose writings were based on teachings that were being circulated orally. This was an oral culture. They told stories, and they reflected together. They met, and they prayed, and they preached, and they questioned. And so they came to more and more clarity about their basic faith convictions. The sources of data for them and their reflection were, first, the Hebrew Scriptures. These were their scriptures, at least for the Jewish Christians early on. And they looked especially to the Messianic prophecies. There were the teachings of Jesus. His people had known him. They'd heard him. He probably told these stories again and again. They knew his sayings. Many of them were probably written down, possibly parables as well. They had their experiences of Jesus as well, especially the apostles. And all of this gave rise to a movement that we now call Apostolic Christianity, There were undoubtedly other kinds of Christianity early on, but this is the one that has survived to date, the one that we in fact call Christianity. One way that early Christianity clarified its understanding of who Jesus was was through its encounter with teachings that came to be called heretical. The term heresy means a teaching that is seriously at odds with established belief. It doesn't imply rigidity, but more concern for right doctrine. Now there's another word, doctrine. What do we mean by that? Sometimes people think that means rigidity as well, but it just means core beliefs. The church's doctrines were its core beliefs. Every organization has core beliefs, and so this is not unusual. By the beginning of the second century, we had all four Gospels and other writings as well. Some valued more than others. The beginnings of prioritizing the values of various writings, which were used more in liturgy or catechesis, had some connection with an apostle, this is all part of what I mean by doctrine. There were valued doctrines. And then there arose teachings that seemed to go against them. We're going to touch on three once called adoptionism it's from the late second century and in adoptionism jesus was a virtuous man just a human he was born a human but he was adopted by god to be god's son when he was baptized in the jordan by john the baptist so in one sense his divine nature was added later in his life and there have been several reemergent forms of this through the centuries The second one we'll touch on here is docetism, Gnosticism. Some forms of Gnosticism, they weren't all like this. Some were actually, we might say, orthodox. But in the form I'm talking about, they tended to view matter as evil, and therefore Jesus could not have had a real human body. His bodily appearance was an apparition, a phantasm, God would never unite God's self with matter. He also couldn't have really suffered and died on the cross. So the church condemned that one as well and said, it's not what we believe. A third one, and this really made a strong impact, Arianism. From the third century onward, it attracted many followers. And the belief here is that the divine son incarnate is Jesus was created by God outside of time, but was not co-eternal with God, the Father. This would mean that Jesus wasn't really fully divine or the Son of God. Quarreling about Arianism went on in the church for decades and decades. It was condemned by the Council of Nicaea in 325. The Nicaean creed that came from that council has statements directed against Arianism. That Jesus was God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. There's the distinction from what Arianism was teaching. Let's go a little deeper into the significance of heresies. Heresies highlight the reality of the sense of the faithful that there is a content to the Christian faith, and it is held more so by the community than in a book or document. We didn't even have those at first. No one person dictates what Christians believe. Heresies prompt increasing clarification of what is believed or not. We even see this in Paul's writings in the New Testament, as he addresses teachings and practices that were problematic in the early communities. It was the role of teachers and people in leadership to take a formal stand against some of these, when necessary. They did so concerning Adoptionism, Dulcetism, some forms of Gnosticism, Arianism, and even reincarnation or transmigration. Names that come to mind include, of course, Paul, and also St. Irenaeus of Lyons, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, and many others. Through this process came the emergence of doctrines, core teachings, even creeds. As we've already noted, doctrines are formulations of core beliefs. In saying what we don't believe, we come to greater clarity about what we do, without completely expressing the mystery, of course. Reference to doctrines can be found as early as the letters of Paul in the New Testament. In his letter to Titus, chapter 1, verse 9, a letter written around sometime between 62 and 66 A.D. on appointing elders, he says, These elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So very early in Christianity there was discernment concerning what was right teaching and what was not. Eventually there were creedal summaries of essential beliefs. These were used as outlines by Christian teachers and even during liturgies. This is still the case to this day. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, for example, uses the Nicene Creed as an outline for some of its chapters and we profess it at Mass, after the homily, and before the liturgy of the Eucharist. Other church groups do the same. It's significant that one of the things that unites a huge diversity of Christian groups are these creedal statements. Groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Latter-day Saints, for example, hold Jesus in very high esteem, but they cannot affirm the beliefs stated in the early Old Roman Creed which later became the Apostles' Creed, are the later Nicene Creed. So Jehovah's Witnesses and Latter-day Saints are not considered Christian groups. The spiritual importance of creeds and doctrines, they help establish in us attitudes that are open to and receptive of what God has revealed in Jesus Christ. central to our understanding of the uniqueness of christ is the teaching that jesus is both human and divine the first 300 years of christianity many of the discussions were about how to conceive the relationship between jesus's humanity and divinity usually in response to heresies as we've noted the new testament already affirmed both that jesus was human and divine but didn't really get technical in specifying how they related or were held together in the person of Jesus. Rebuttals to heresies teased out a more philosophical understanding. But let's look at the New Testament first before we get into that. In the New Testament, we read about the humanity of Jesus, that he ate and slept and wept, suffered, and died. His body wasn't a phantasm or an apparition. It was real. As the author of the book of Hebrews noted in chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus was a human like us in all things but sin. We also read about his divinity, how he calmed storms, multiplied food, raised the dead, And himself rose from the dead these all evidence divine attributes one important other is that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit this is not something ordinary people can do only God can share God's spirit and so in the scriptures we read references to Jesus's divinity one example being from the first chapter of the Gospel of John where we read that the Word who was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Jesus that we encounter in the New Testament is both human and divine. Let's take a closer look at how the church came to affirm Jesus's humanity and divinity. We'll be using an approach taken from Greek philosophy to try to make helpful distinctions If there's a better way to explain these issues, it can surely gain acceptance. So we'll be looking at reality in terms of that, what, and who. That refers to the fact that something is, it's a being, and this can be most anything. What tells us what kind of thing it is, or what is its nature. Who refers to a type of being whose nature is personal, who can enter into conscious relationship, who possesses conscious intelligence and freedom. We could say more about all these, but as we go through this chart, I think you'll see what we mean. First, let's look at earth, air, wind, fire, and so forth. Beings, we have various types. Rocks are a type of being, of course, molecules, atoms, various compounds. Their nature is inanimate. What kind of person do we encounter? None. You can talk to a rock, but it can't talk back to you. It can't relate as a person. Next, we look at plants. And again, we have various types of plants. Individual trees, species grasses, herbs, and so forth. The nature of plants, we might say, is vegetable. Person, can you talk to plants? Can they benefit? Some research shows that they kind of like it, but they can't really relate back to you. They don't possess personhood. Okay, how about animals? Again, various types of beings, all different kinds of animals, and each one is a type of being. The nature is animal nature, and animal nature is kind of a higher nature than plant nature, which is mostly physiological. Animals relate to their environment in different ways. They're instinctive. They have senses. They have a kind of intelligence as well. Some of them show emotional intelligence. What about persons? Are animals persons? Well, we might think our dogs are very cute and cuddly and lovable. And you can talk to them and they seem to understand, but they don't fit the criteria of person that we mentioned earlier. Okay, up to humans. Two kinds of beings here. Of course, each individual person is a being. We have individual men and women. The nature is human, human nature. And as we see in this chart, human nature incorporates animal vegetative and inanimate levels of nature as well so there's kind of an evolutionary thing going on as we move along this chart animal nature exists within human nature and is informed by human nature as well what about persons yes humans are embodied spiritual beings we have a spiritual soul And as such, it constitutes us with the kind of intelligence that enables us to relate consciously. Persons, woman, and man. Okay, now we come to Christ. Who was the being? There was only one, Jesus of Nazareth. What was his nature? We say his nature was human and divine. And it took a while to come to this clarity as we've noted earlier there was a heresy that came later than the ones that we've mentioned so far this one called nestorianism and it said that jesus was a human person and a divine person as we see in the chart here there's only one person in jesus the divine son expressing through the humanity of jesus So he has a human nature and a divine nature, but one person exists, the divine Son. This is kind of complicated to explain, because obviously when you encounter Jesus, the people who encountered him in his historical life, did encounter a human individual. I think the situation is analogous to what we see going on in human beings. How when we encounter a human, we're encountering a spiritual soul expressing through a human body, which is an animal body, a body that's been transformed and taken up into human spiritual consciousness. Similarly, the person of the divine son created for itself a human soul and a body in the womb of Mary to reveal God to us as Jesus Christ. Okay, let's consider God. Is God a being? Yes, We say God is the supreme being. And furthermore, we say that God is only one being. Christianity is a form of monotheism. What is God's nature? God's nature is divine spirit. And person. Well, we say there are three persons in the one being we call God. Father, Son, and Spirit. So pretty interesting to put these side by side, showing the different perspectives we can have on these, and we can see the uniqueness of Christ in this context. What difference does this all make? It can seem like one big head trip, all this talk of doctrines and heresies and true God and true man and so forth. What's the spiritual significance of it all? I think we can say that the church's teachings are ways of pointing our human consciousness toward Jesus. They also help to stabilize attitudes of faith in the mind. Here are a few takeaways from what we've covered. First, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. This is a reaffirmation of Peter's profession of faith in Matthew 16, verse 16. He knew the human Jesus and had a faith intuition or revelation of Jesus as the Messiah and more, the son of the living God. We have seen how this early expression of faith came to be more deeply understood as the church responded to various teachings that were regarded as heretical. Second, this means that Jesus, for Christians, is the decisive revealer of the character of God. In Jesus, we see, in human form, God's love for us and God's expectation that we love one another. This doesn't mean that there aren't holy people in other world religions who are also moved by the Spirit. We can learn from them. In the end, however, it is Jesus we look to and the teaching of the church for guidance concerning religious truth and for moral leadership as well. Third, Jesus Himself is the good news of the Gospel. Let's repeat that. It's Jesus, more so than His teaching, that is the good news of the Gospel. He is our living link with the divine, and we encounter Him through His many modes of presence to us prayer, Scripture, worship, the sacraments, the creation service and many other ways as well this is all possible because jesus is risen and ascended present to the entire cosmos there's no place we can go where he is not present and waiting fourth jesus extends god's forgiveness and healing he reconciles us with god One of the main points made by St. Athanasius in his arguments with the Arians at the Council of Nicaea was that Jesus could not forgive sins unless he truly was the Son of God, and not simply a very high spiritual being. Scripture shows Jesus forgiving sins on numerous occasions, much to the chagrin of Jewish teachers, who rightly noted that only God can forgive sins. So we can go to Jesus for forgiveness and healing, and trust that he will not turn us away, no matter how badly we've sinned or been wronged. And number five, Jesus blesses us with the Holy Spirit of God, something only God can do. He shares with us the flow of love found in the Trinity, and makes of us adopted sons and daughters of God. This Holy Spirit is much, much more than chi energy or prana or some form of Shaktipat or energy touch. It is the very life of God, supernatural life, empowering us to live the kind of life Jesus taught us to live. We can't live that kind of life on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to help us on our way. So let us give thanks to Jesus and the tremendous gift he is to us and let us prayerfully turn our lives and will over to his care